0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of
1: Reuters News. Welcome to the Views Room. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, the financial commentary wing of Reuters News, coming to you this week from Times Square in Manhattan. For the first time in a year i sat down face to face and without face masks mind you with john foley our u.s editor john and i discussed a series of deals announced over the past week in the united states involving the biggest names in private equity including blackstone kkr and carlisle we specifically went over three transactions that each carried a slightly different flavor from the old school leverage buyouts of the past the deals were in descending order of magnitude, the 34 billion buyout Medline Industries, which supplies gowns, gloves, and drugs to healthcare providers by Blackstone, Carlisle, and Hellman and Friedman, a $10 billion take private of QTS Realty, a giant operator of data centers by Blackstone as well, and a KKR Units merger with a public company, Contango Oil & Gas, giving an enterprise value of about $6 billion. As you hear from John, each deal contained an innovative wrinkle and a lot less debt than your grandfather's LBO. But he says that may not make them home runs for investors in the private equity player's funds. After that, I hand the mic over to Jeff Goldfarb, our Asia editor, who spoke with Pete Sweeney in Hong Kong about his piece on the increasing monoculture of the Fragrant Harbors economy. Hong Kong's bankers and corporate finance firms are hiring like crazy, but other multinationals are looking to exit, as China increasingly tamps down on freedoms in the former British colonial outpost. Outside the financial sector, trade, retail, and other services are declining. Raises the question of whether Hong Kong will end up as Wall Street without the rest of Manhattan. Give a listen. Well, John, it is great to see you face-to-face here in Times Square. I don't know how long it's been. It's been like 18 months. Yeah.
2: And it, and it smells as
1: ripe as ever. <laughs> yeah, New York yeah. in the summer. Well, um, speaking of things that smell ripe, let's talk about <laughs> private equity. So you guys here in the States have been writing large number of stories about very large deals involving private equity firms like Blackstone and KKR, but they have a slightly different shape, don't they?
2: Right. So we're getting back to what seems like the good old days of private equity firms doing gigantic buyouts of companies you remember like back in 2007 and earlier companies like blackstone were buying these businesses like toys r us or txu that big energy company for like you know tens of billions of dollars so that seems to have started often together like club deals club deals yeah we're like sort of frenemies get together so that they can pool their money and buy bigger targets. And and this year, even in the last week, we've seen three quite big deals by Blackstone and a couple of its pals and KKR taking companies private or just rearranging the ownership for huge amounts of money. So the one that the big one... Yeah, let's say... So... The big one was Medline, which sort of Medline, popped out over the weekend. Yeah. And, and it
1: sort of had this number of 30-something billion. So you thought TXU, you thought, wow, that's one of these you know, big numbers again, big deals. And it had Blackstone, Carlisle, and is that Hellman right? And and Friedman. Hellman and Friedman. And then the Singaporean uh, uh, GIC. GIC, exactly. Looked like, like I immediately thought, oh, club deal. And it is a club deal, but it's, it has a different
2: feeling. No, so yeah. So so the num that number thirty billion dollars, which is how much they're paying for the equity, is would make it the biggest buyout in over a decade, at least. It's almost as big as TXU, um, which was kind of the, the record. Um, but it's not really a buyout. So what what Blackstone and Carlyle and Hellman and Friedman and the Singaporeans are doing is, they're like basically. Teaming up with the family that owns Medline, which makes gloves and gowns and stuff that goes in hospitals obviously, like you know, stuff that we need a lot of right now. So, it's a gross business. They're teaming up to basically help the family that owns it take out a a giant sum of cash. So, this is the Mills family, family. like fourth
1: generation or something. They've been, and it's a private company. We should also say, so unlike some of these others we were talking about from the 2007 era, uh, this was a private company, one of the biggest private companies, one might think, in, in the United States. And they are cashing out a chunk of their equity but still will retain some sort of control. Is that right? Well,
2: so they will end up being 25%-ish shareholders in the company and the three private equity firms will each also own roughly 25% and they're going to sell some shares to other people and stuff. But basically, at the end of the day, when all the smoke clears, each of these four will each basically have a quarter control of the company. But the family, which is, you know, the chief executive, Charles Mills, he's a family member, so is the president, and, you know, it's stocked with family members. They'll basically have more influence than anyone. So private equity firms that we're used to coming in, taking control, pushing people around, reshaping the business, firing everyone, bringing in new people, they're not doing anything like that. They're letting the family stay in charge, and they're kind of taking a bit of a backseat. It almost seems like the kind of deal like a Warren Buffett would have done,
1: you know, where you, you, you buy in, family stays in control you don't change much
2: yeah it is that's the weird thing so Buffett you know Warren Buffett will say I like this company I understand what it does I like the industry that's almost what private equity firms are doing now that's also what Blackstone did on on a deal a couple of days later for QTS which is a a kind of a data storage it's it's
1: called QTS Realty Trust if I understand it, they own tons of data centers yeah so, so big, giant hotels for warehouses ru-
2: routers and and all stuff. that kind of stuff. Exactly. So that so and again, Blackstone is not saying let's fire everyone and like do things totally differently. They're saying we like this business. It's growing quite fast. We'll buy it and we'll just let the management do what it wants. It's great. I mean, it's great for Buffett. It's worked really well. But it's not what private equity clients are paying spectacularly large fees for
1: But this one it was more like a traditional buyout in the sense that they were they were taken over, you know, they were a yeah. public company, they basically sold out, they're going private, and as a result, uh, this thing will stay in whatever Blackstone fund's hands. I think it was an infra also kind of interesting, it was an yeah. infrastructure as well as a real estate fund, and then over time they will I guess bring it back to the market?
2: Is that what happens? I guess that's the theory, yeah. There's some point they'll want to exit. But but having said that, this another difference here is that this is using what they call permanent capital. So, whereas private equity used to buy stuff and then it would have to sell it a few years later to get the money back to give to its investors. This time they're saying, you know, we're in no rush, we're just going to buy this and hold it. At which point you start saying, well, if I'm, if I'm a rich person with loads of money to spend, why, don't, why, am I, why am I not just doing this myself? Why don't I just buy shares in this company, sit on them, hold them for years, not change the management, not change anything else? Why should I do this through Blackstone? and pay a crazy amount of fee. And what's
1: the answer? What, was, what does Blackstone say when we put that question to them? I'm curious.
2: Well, so the, the, the theme of private equity right now is that, that companies, instead of trying to like slice and dice businesses and change the way they do things, they're trying to identify companies that are growing quickly and support them with money. Which kinda sounds great, right? You know, of course everyone likes growth right now. But what it really reflects is that private equity has a crazy amount of money to spend, but so does everybody else. There are so many places that these companies can go to for money. And and whereas in the olden days there were businesses that were failing or in real trouble and private equity turned them around, everyone is doing quite well because the economy is kind of booming, especially here in the US. So these private equity firms have more money to chase fewer targets, and those targets don't really need private equity. So they have
1: sort of almost like a growth equity sort of yeah. veneer. Plus, we're your friends, we'll be on your board, we'll, we'll, we'll stay out of the way for yeah. the most part. Not like the old days where you walk into the, the the ultimate um, KKR and RJR Nabisco and you take it in, you rip it apart. you. Have Yep. Larded up with debt. I guess one other question about that, but um, before we get to the third deal, um, is debt. I mean, are we seeing a lot less debt b- being put on the the capital structures of these companies?
2: In the deals that we're talking about, yes. So, so comp- whereas previously you would lard the company with debt, so you had as little of your own equity in as you possibly can get away with. Now they're making a feature of being a bit more conservative. So, so both in uh, Medline and in QTS, Medline, basically half of it is funded with debt, which is okay. quite low for private equity. QTS, we don't know the exact number, but we know that it's lower than the traditional private equity deal, which, um, which is, again, great, because put too much equity on a company and it can become Toys R Us, which failed horribly because it had too much debt um, after it was bought out by private equity firms. But also, again, it raises the question for these private equity companies, clients like why what, what, are you, what are you doing if you're not putting on debt you're not firing the management you're not changing the strategy you're just buying it holding it and charging me two percent management fee on everything that i give you and 20 percent of the profit i could have just bought the stock with a little bit of margin to get the the debt yeah. and then uh, and
1: and that's in the way i went
2: exactly and if you can't if you blackstone can't spend my money on something you can just give it back to me Interesting. There was another piece you guys wrote
1: about here in which the the headline was KKR flips the LBO script with
2: a management buy-in, and it was in the oil industry. Explain that one a bit. Yeah, so this is another unconventional private equity deal, although in a very different way. So KKR, big rival to Blackstone, run by Henry Kravis. it basically is merging what an oil company that it owns with a publicly traded oil company called Contango. So independence, KKR-owned, merges with Contango. But it's like a reverse merger where Contango, the smaller company- Which was public. listed, Which was public, remains listed and, and then absorbs this big KKR-owned company, independence. Um, and, it, and, and the chairman of Contango, who is also the biggest shareholder, gets to keep his job as chairman Um, and now runs a bigger company. So you can tell that he's happy about this arrangement. Mm -hmm. KKR's happy because it gets to like, you know, turn its private investment into a public one and it also gets all these funny voting shares that other people don't get. The only people who aren't happy are Contango's poor other shareholders who don't really get any choice about this deal? So they didn't like it. The stock did not. The stock reform. has fallen. Okay, which is not what you want when a company. You, yeah, has I a mean, it, deal. and
1: it sounds like a SPAC deal almost, like where you know you take yeah. a private company, you reverse it into an existing pub uh, public company, and the new public company takes on the new business and. And in this case, you would, in theory, have uh, some sort of synergies, I suppose, right? I guess you'd have cost savings. It's odd then, well, I guess it, w- w- the, the numbers must just not stack up for the
2: public shareholders. Well, they must be getting something that they don't like. I mean, the difference is that with a SPAC, as you say, SPACs are these vehicles that are created to buy a private company and turn it into a public one. But at least SPAC investors know that they're investing in a SPAC. Contango's investors thought they were investing in Contango, and now suddenly they find out they're being used as a vehicle for KKR to take its its own company independence.
1: So product. all of this, you put it all together, it's like private equity is no longer quite, it's not just good old-fashioned LBO, buy public company, take it private, get the banks to lend you a bunch of money, take it out in, in the capital markets, and then wait five years and after you've cut costs and yeah. raise the EBITDA,
2: bring That's it back to the market. all sounds old hat. But you know what private equity companies are still really good at? which you see in all these deals. They're good at working with influential individuals and families and insiders to give them what they want. And it doesn't matter whether everyone else gets the rough end of the stick. So the Mills family in Medline, obviously getting a great deal here. The chairman, John Goff of Contango, obviously getting a wonderful deal. Who cares what everyone else thinks as long as you can influence those rich insiders. I guess it is, insiders. it is called private
1: equity, not public equity Indeed. for a reason. All right, well, thanks, John. Uh, keep cool out in the hot New York City
2: sun. we Will do.
1: Hi, this is Jeff Goldfarb
0: from Melbourne. Uh, It has been about a year since I left Hong Kong and uh, coincidentally uh, a year about that since Beijing imposed its uh, national security law. And uh, I'm talking to Pete Sweeney, who is over in Hong Kong now. I mean, obviously a lot has changed, Pete, and we've seen some fresh stories from our colleagues on the news side about some hiring that's going on in, in Hong Kong. But it's a little bit deceptive, and and you wrote quite an interesting column about this, but at least the banking industry for now seems to be moving along business as usual in Hong Kong.
3: Yes, well, um, so so the stories that are out there are, 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 you know, surveys, anecdotes, talking to companies about their intentions, and there's a couple of data points. I mean, one is the Reuters report, um, which You know, heard from from various major multinational banks, Goldman Sachs, Citibank, UBS, who are are adding staff. Um, That's part of a wider trend to target um, the wealth management industry. Um, A lot of wealthy Chinese like coming out to Hong Kong, which is outside the the capital controls um, and investing through that channel. So it's a good place to be. Um, Obviously, the rest of the financial sector in Hong Kong has recovered after the protests um, and, you know, the pandemic recovery is underway. Um, there's been plenty of trading, a lot of IPOs, um, the deals are picking up. So, um, so yeah, and, and none of that is is that surprising. What What's interesting is to, the contrast I think between like the, the recent survey by the American Chamber of Commerce that showed like 42 percent, I think, of recipients are saying they're either planning to leave or or considering leaving Hong Kong. These are corporates. There's been you know some other signs of people exiting um, and and it's interesting the direction that is happening as well. You know some companies are like looks like they're hedging by going to Singapore or setting up you know other offices that they could build up and and others are going into mainland China. And the risk, I guess, is that Hong Kong is you know outside the financial sector, a slow migration is is getting underway. either you know leave Hong Kong for for uh, Singapore or further places or just deepen your your engagement with mainland China and leave your expensive Hong Kong office space.
0: But what's the, I mean, I know the rationale is probably different depending upon, A, where you're from, like, you know, if you're an American company or a Chinese company and what industry you're in. But what, like, I mean, I guess to play somewhat of a devil's advocate, I mean, and to take the line that a lot of the business people, the business people say, like, well, you know, Hong Kong is Hong Kong. Like, it's always had this kind of, you know, as long as I can do business and, like, I don't really care about, like, the rest of this stuff, right? I mean, that's the story that you hear, but what is the, re- so why are why are we seeing these numbers of, like, over 40% of respondents to this AmCham story? Like, what, what what's the rationale behind it? where are they going? Why are, well, we know where they're going, but why are they doing it now?
3: Right, well, it's important to caveat, I mean, like, so, Chambers of Commerce, people feel free to complain anonymously in Chambers of Commerce. There's a huge difference between griping in an anonymous survey, and you know, turning in the keys to your Hong Kong office, shutting down your bank accounts, turning off your corporate presence. There are no statistical signs yet of a massive exit by corporations. So, I mean, obviously, last year was a very muddy year. Um, but, like, in terms of the data, like, what we hear is people talking about reducing headcount, you know, getting more nervous. But there, there has not been, you know, flight at this point. But there are several reasons, you know, why the direction of travel is is worrisome. And for one thing, you know, the more Hong Kong gets like mainland China is regulated like mainland China, the more it just becomes a very expensive place to have an office. If corporations feel like the this legal system um, is getting harmonized with like the way that that foreign companies are treated in Shanghai, the way that you know the, the, the firewall is maintained, so on and so forth, then why are you spending to be in Hong Kong when you could just be in Shanghai? I mean, if you're one of those companies that has is, is ma- managed to make profit off the mainland market, you know, and you're used to that legal system, I mean, maybe you want to leave something in Hong Kong, an entity, so you can you can get your your profits out into hard currency. But apart from that, do you really need that much headcount? Do you need a lot of office space? Do you need to hire people or do you just need like some sort of entity? And uh, there, there's been one of the major arguments, I think, is about the quality of the legal changes that have happened. In Hong Kong. Now, the, the Hong Kong government very much insists that like there this is gonna be rule of law and kind of like a Singapore model where you know political criticism is, is sort of out of bounds, but everything else is gonna be regulated the way that it was. But that's already, you know, under pressure because they're revising the, the immigration law to allow the government to to re- hold people inside Hong Kong, prevent them from departing. Um, and that is something that is goes around the legal system. It's something you have in the mainland. And it's really worrisome for executives because what you can have is a, is, you know, a civil dispute with a Chinese company or Chinese entity. You know, and if they, have the, if, if they can convince the, a judge to say, listen, um, you need to prevent these people from leaving before this, this dispute is settled, um, then you basically have this really effective way to extort executives who you know, aren't based in Hong Kong. They fly through. You've got some lawsuit with a Chinese supplier or something. The next thing you know, you can't leave. And that's really intimidating. Um, the other areas are atmospheric, but I mean, if you're like in the information business, if you're in the media business, um, the national security car law is extraterritorial. It's clearly going to be enforced. Um, they just forced a, a, an Israeli web host to shut down a website not in Hong Kong um, that was hosting a, a Hong Kong's dissidents, a political dissidents um, website. So that direction of travel is is negative as well. So I think what you're going to see is people kind of looking at Hong Kong as financially useful, right? It, it's got a good stock market. You know, it's got an independent currency. And the last thing that's going to go is going to be the legal support for for financial contracts. But everything else looks pretty wobbly. I
0: mean, and then I there's the fact that, like,
3: that go ahead. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess
0: to the point, I, I mean, most people like listening to this or maybe who have, you know, in the in end, the, like most of our readers many of our readers you know in the i mean in the financial industry they might think of like they might say well i always thought of hong kong as kind of like just really just a place to do finance and trade like what so what's like what was different like what like why is that a big deal it's a, it's a financial hub it's a it's a banking center it's a market center um like well what's that, the big that's, deal?
3: that's sort of the precise problem that i tried to write about i mean like so hong kong is, is in some ways is, is, is similar to looking at New York, right? It, it's, it's financial sector is very, very important. Uh, it's like 20% of GDP finance, including insurance. 20% of GDP, I, that's actually lower than New York last I checked. I think New York, although they don't define it exactly the same, but New York State says financial activities are like 30% of, of state GDP. Um, they employ about similar amounts of people, um, maybe around 300,000 headcount. Um, but that leaves a lot of the rest of the economy. And in Hong Kong, the rest of the economy is not doing very well. And if you look at any given sector, there are problems. Um, look at trade, you know, which is another big, big contributor. I mean, that the, the port of Hong Kong has been steadily, constantly losing ground um, to ports in Shanghai and Shenzhen and even Singapore. It keeps on falling uh, in place in terms of container throughput. Um, that's a problem, and there's really no easy solution for it. In terms of retail, you know, a lot of that was was supported by by regular flows from the mainland, including tourism, but also, you know, business traffic. Um, The recent ructions in Hong Kong and just kind of the generally negative tone here, I believe, are going to put, you know, put a permanent dent in that line of revenue. And that employs a lot of small businesses and a lot of people, you know, Um, and and it's even worse because Beijing is kind of contributing to this. They've just uh, freed up a. um, They've made Hainan, which is a nearby island province, into this uh, duty-free luxury shopping zone. You know, which means that if you're a Chinese tourist, you can you have a choice now between going to Hong Kong, which requires getting a special permit to cross the border, right, and you have to pay for these very expensive hotels, these very small rooms, or you can go to Hainan, which is like a beach. Well, I'm not going to call it paradise, but it's pretty nice beaches. You know, they compare to the Hawaii of China or whatever. But you don't need anything under that. You just buy your ticket. And if, you, if all you're in the market for is like a, a nice bag and you don't want to pay the tax, you can do that. Um, so it doesn't seem like Beijing is really supporting, you know, this part of the Hong Kong economy that, uh, you know, that, that that does so much support at the lower end for restaurants, f and and so on and so forth.
0: I mean, you well, can't just prop been,
3: everything up on finance. So Right.
0: I mean, there's always been this curiosity that, Hong Kong has never been able to develop into something develop other industries whether it's tech or whatever I mean you have you know pretty well educated um people you know people a uh, sort of a great location really um you know yes you can question sort of the direction of travel in terms of uh, Beijing's influence on the city but but you know it's is there scope to to develop another part of the economy or another part of the industry without sort of Disrupting, obviously, what what Beijing clearly intends to do, what it wants to do. with
3: well, That's the saddest and the most inexplicable part for me, because it seems like the local government here, um, headed by Carrie Lam, has kind of given up. I mean, her big push now is is for young people um, to emigrate. Like the, the her government is constantly talking up these opportunities and this. Greater Bay Area, they talk about, which is basically, you know, includes a bunch of mainland cities headed by Shenzhen, which has its own stock market, a big healthy technology sector, you know, uh, and, and and cheaper rent. And basically, the message coming from the government is like, you know, China's more dynamic. You should go there and get work. Well, you know, if all of the skilled young people leave, who is going to be left here? And not only that, but like if they're trying to attract mainlanders to come here you know, like young, talented mainlanders, and they hear what what the local government is saying, why would they go to Hong Kong instead of the Greater Bay Area? You know, if Hong Kong itself doesn't believe that it can compete with Shenzhen, that it can achieve that sort of dynamism anymore, and frankly, I totally agree with that, um, because this because the national security laws impact on media, and also because of these other crackdowns we've had in the mainland on the technology sector, on e-commerce, on firms like Alibaba, and also on cryptocurrencies, interestingly enough. I mean, all of that is very negative for Hong Kong's ability to set up like a, a competitive dynamic tech sector, even if they could get around the fact that the rentier is crippling to any small company. But they really don't seem like they're pushing for like an alternative. It's just like everybody should just pack up. And I don't understand how that works out economically. Because finance, you know, bankers and insurers can't rent out all these friggin' apartments. They're not going to keep all these restaurants in business. And they certainly are not going to justify the massive amount of money this government is planning to spend building a whole new city off of Lantau that's going to host like maybe a million apartments or apartments for a million people, something like that. A whole new third business center they're building. And 50,000 people net immigration last year left Hong Kong. You know, and, and I just I just don't understand that what the plan is, and I think a lot of people are confused.
0: All right, well, that sounds pretty dire, B, but I appreciate you walking us through it. Well, well I it mean, it's I'm a so slow-burning thing. I should just say <laughs> this
3: is going to yeah. happen slowly. Like I, I, I I'm Yeah, very it's not right going right to happen tomorrow. Yeah. Of yeah. Like nobody is running out the door. But like, the, I just don't. The direction of travel right now, um, if Beijing, if, if Carrie Lam wants to convince people that Hong Kong has a future and they want to protect the economy, they can't just satisfy themselves that the, the financial markets are working.
1: And that's that's my only point. All
0: right. Thanks a lot for taking us through that, Pete. Appreciate it.
1: My pleasure, Joe. That's our show for the week. Thanks to our producer, Freddie Joiner here in New York. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get high-quality podcast fixes. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Goodbye.